This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Frank Zappa's former bandmates bring the Zappa Band to the Birchmere this Sunday in Alexandria, Virginia, and Ramshead in Annapolis, Maryland next Tuesday. I spoke to Zappa Band member Mike Keneally for a deep dive into Zappa's groundbreaking discography. Hey, Mike Keneally. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. We're here because we're talking about the Zappa Band, which is, you know, some of Frank Zappa's original bandmates uh, reuniting, touring here. Uh, they're going to be coming to a couple places in our area. It's going to be, you guys are going to be at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on June 19th, and then Ram's Head uh, on stage in Annapolis, I believe, on the 21st. So a couple of chances to see you. Um, so uh, remind us here. So is this, uh, it, it's, you know, it's it's members of, of Zappa's original band, um, you know, uh, so who we got you, yourself and, you know, tell, tell me who are the original members that, that are still going. Sure. Um, yeah, I came in uh, to Frank's band on the 1988 tour, which was his last tour. So I'm, I'm still the new guy. But then we've <laughs> got uh, uh, Ray White, who first started playing with, with Frank in 1976 on uh, on lead vocals and guitar. And then uh, two guys who came in the 1981 band is uh, Robert Martin on lead vocals and keyboards and saxophone and Scott Tunis on bass. So of the six guys in the band, we're the four who played with Frank. But then the drummer, Joe Travers, is his, uh, you know, he's an amazing drummer, but his day gig is working at the, in the Zappa tape vault. His, his job title is Vaultmeister. And it's his job to go into the you know, thousands of, uh, of tapes that, that Frank recorded in, uh, in the studio and live in concert and find unreleased music to put out on these amazing archival box sets that have been coming out over the last few years. And then the, uh, the other guitar player is Jamie Keim, and he played in Zappa Play Zappa uh, in the, in the, back in the aughts, in the 2000s. And uh, he also is, is just the, an amazing guitar player that the good friend of all of us, I, I uh, produced his solo record that came out a few years ago. So, you know, we've all got connections in various ways. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tidy little combo. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned Zappa Play Zappa. Um, I think we do, we interviewed uh, Dweezil Zappa a couple years ago, I think. Um, so yeah, like, so how does this work? I mean, I guess I assume the, 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 I guess the Zappa family, you know, he's, he's since passed, obviously, but you know, the, the family has give you the blessing to do this, you know, whole thing, call it the Zappa band and do a whole separate, you know, project here. Yeah. Uh, Amit, who's essentially in charge of the, of the Zappa trust at this point, he and his sister Diva, he, uh, he kind of formed this band uh, three years ago for uh, a tour that, that he had uh, conceived of called the Bizarre World of Frank Zappa. And that was a, an, an expensive tour with a lot of uh, crazy involved uh, visuals and stuff, very complex to, to, uh, to mount and move around. 
and you need to have certain size venues, certain size stages in order to do that. So after we finished that tour, uh, the rest of us in the band were just thinking, we'd like to keep playing. So we started booking uh, gigs at this jazz club in Los Angeles, The Baked Potato. Um, and Amit came out to see us there and he said, yeah, this, this is a good thing. This is a, a valid enterprise for you guys to continue doing even apart from the, the Bizarre World concept. And he, uh, he named us, he said, you guys are the Zappa band. He couldn't think of a better name. Uh, <laughs> this so is Amit, his, one of his, one of his uh, children, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amit Zappa. Gotcha. Well, that's it's really great for all the fans of the music that you know you can continue it on because yeah, he passed what? Oh, gosh, we're almost going on thirty years. It was nineteen on thirty years next year. 19, will be thirty. Yeah. Yeah, nineteen ninety three. Wow. So wow, that's crazy. It's been that long, but yeah, it's cool. It you're is. keeping the, it's cool. You're keeping the music going though, and pulling it from the vault, as you said, with one, <laughs> the vault guy. Um. Well, well. Um. Really quick. So, uh, in terms of this actual show here at the Birchmere, oh, and and the one in Annapolis too. Um. What what sort of songs that you know? If we have some Zappa diehards, you know, can you give us a, a slight teaser of some of the stuff that might be on the set list oh well it's, what's cool is that we we know too much music to play in one night so if, if anybody decides to come to uh alexander and annapolis uh they'll they'll see some different stuff um but yeah we 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 cover a, a lot of ground from you know earlier material late 60s early 70s all the way through the 80s so uh, we're doing some stuff from the, the Roxy and Elsewhere album, if, if people are familiar with the Village of the Sun and Echidna's Arf and Bebop Tango. And then, uh, so that's from 74, but we're also doing you know, some of the stuff that's uh, more well-known from the Apostrophe and, uh, and uh, Overnight Sensation records. But then we're, we've also got some more obscure material from, uh, uh, I think we're, we're doing some stuff from uh, Uncle Meat, and uh, we might do some stuff from Weasels Rip My Flesh, and then later stuff from the 80s, like uh, from uh, Alien Orifice from the Mothers of Prevention album. Yeah, just it, it's a we're trying to the, the same way Frank would do in concert, we're trying to strike a nice balance between the, the more intricate, complex instrumental stuff uh, that some people are really into, and then the, the, the more straight ahead vocal material that that some people are really into. And, you know, of course, we were into all of it. And, uh, and just try to deliver it all as, as strongly and confidently as we can, you know. Fantastic. Yeah, you're some of the the name title song title drops and albums that you're that you're mentioned fans will definitely uh, they'll perk up when they hear those They remember that stuff. Well, um, well, I know, I know you mentioned that you're sort, you know, relatively speaking, the newer member of the group, even though you've been there a while. Yeah, I've only been um, here for 34 years. Right, right. You're still a spring chicken after 30, <laughs> 34 <laughs> years. <laughs> um, but yeah, so but even though that's the case, I'm sure you're steeped in the history of Frank Zappa. I know his life story a little bit to remind maybe remind some of our maybe younger listeners listeners um you know uh that he got that he he was born right here in our area he was born in baltimore um do you know but but you know remind them sort of how how he got started playing music if you if you re can relate that story of what you've heard yeah well i'm i'm, I'm i was a hardcore fan growing up but so yeah that's i i was obsessed about frank when i was when i was a, a teenager in the 70s um so yeah born in in baltimore but his family moved to california and he ended up in uh in kind of out uh, in Cucamonga, which is uh, it, sort of in the in the middle of nowhere, and and he ended up befriending a guy named Don Van Vliet, who later became Captain Beefheart, and uh, and Frank was just real interested in 
unusual music probably for you know a teenager to be into because he was he was uh, simultaneously into real hardcore r and b uh, but he was also into really uh, severe contemporary music composers like uh, Edgar Varez and Anton Webern. It's not like uh, easy listening classical. This is the stuff that would, would make uh, a lot of people just run out of the house. Uh, so those two influences combined kind of uh, got him going. Uh, but he, he also was really into Stravinsky. And, and uh, so his, his composition chops got developed at an early age. But also, so did his love of, of rhythm and blues and just a really, you know, nasty sounding guitar and stuff like that. Uh, he loved Charlie Guitar Watson and Guitar Slim. And, you know, these are guys who just like, if you heard them play one note on a guitar, you could tell their life depended on it. So he, he was into that stuff too. And then, you know, in the mid 60s, he formed the Mothers of Invention and uh, started making a name for himself in on the Los Angeles club scene as a the, the rare entertainer who didn't care if you liked him. <laughs> you know, he was, uh, if, if, uh, if an audience was hostile to him in any way, he was very happy to be hostile right back. He wasn't out to curry anybody's favor. And uh, his music right from the get-go was, was very adventurous and experimental and only got more so. So he really kind of developed a, a following of people who appreciated the the unusual nature of his music and how original it was and how powerful it was to see people executing this impossible stuff live on stage and also people who just appreciated his attitude and he also had a wicked sense of humor so a lot of his lyrics are, are really funny um and uh he just uh, was a unique figure in in popular music and had a huge influence. Paul McCartney said at one point that Sgt. Pepper was the Beatles' attempt at doing a freakout, and freakout was was the, the first Frank Zappa Mothers of Invention record, and you can hear, you know, some direct influences there. So even if people aren't that familiar with, with Frank's music, they definitely have felt his influence uh, through other more popular music that uh, that they definitely have heard. His, his whole influence definitely got into the, the cultural water supply that way. But also, he later on did a lot of composition for orchestras, and, and uh, many symphony orchestras continue to perform his music to this day. So it's uh, his influence has spread far and wide. Yeah, you mentioned that Freakout album and how it, in, in, it might have influenced Sgt. Pepper some, and McCartney even said so. But uh, so that came out in '66, and um, it, it it really is. If you look back on it, it was that the first ever quote unquote concept album ever created? Well, it, it would be a loose concept if, if it's it's mostly kind of a concept by virtue of the packaging and on the inside, he, he kind of presents his uh, his almost like his mission statement. Uh, it, it was rare to have any artist come from nowhere and and make such use of, of the opportunity to let their feelings be known to the listener. You know, he he presented himself as as a uh, you know, he was he also before he got into the music professionally he was in the the, the advertising business and the the greeting card business and he, he got some insights at an early age into presentation and how to get your your ideas across and uh, the the artwork on those early mother's albums were intentionally quite ugly you know and, and in fact that was a uh, 
that was a selling point. If you look at the, the back cover of, of Freak Out, there's a there's an, a fake letter that you know purports to be written by a, a, a high school student named Susie Cream Cheese. It was actually written by Frank, but it's all about how ugly the band is and and how much uh, they were scared uh, what would happen if they invited them to the high school prom and stuff like that. So it, it, it was it was very uh, savvy packaging right from the get go. He knew that that they that the band weren't as beautiful as as the Beatles or any number of other more popular bands. So he was going to uh, emphasize the other angle, the fact that they were, uh, you know, they were outcasts, that they were uh, the they they were literally the other people. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm just looking through, you know, all of his output and it's really insane. And we would be here. Oh, it's all a day. ridiculous amount of music. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we would talk all day, but I do want to, you know, try to highlight, hit a couple highlights for our listeners. Um, but both for the hardcore fans that love hearing about it and maybe some newer folks that, you know, give them pinpoint a couple for them to go back and listen to. So I'm going to try to, maybe I'll pluck a couple if you don't mind. Um, sure. that maybe, maybe some of the more, you know, you know, more successful ones. Um, well, we mentioned freak out. Well, the next one actually did pretty well. Oh, um absolutely free and, and you want to talk about that one really quick well that was the, the because uh, they apparently uh overspent their budget or at least uh they really bruised it on on freak out which was a, a, a double record which uh, along with blonde on blonde by bob dylan they were like two of the first uh you know standalone double albums released by rock music act so that that was was sort of groundbreaking at the time another absolutely, groundbreaking thing <laughs> absolutely free uh they were given like nine hours to make because they they had their budget cut um but they managed to really uh quickly in the studio uh you know create two this is unusual at the time also it's it's two sides of music that are un unbroken meaning that each song goes into the next so they're basically two like, like 18 or 19 minute suites uh and there are some classic pieces on there like plastic people you know very very acerbic commentary on on society at the time and, including uh, brown shoes tell me about brown shoes don't make it what, brown shoes don't make it is that that's that's just a that's a character study of an of an evil uh, industrialist and and uh, the unsavory stuff that he gets up to in his free time uh <laughs> it's 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 got you know characters and little the dramatic plays and the different members of the band uh, performing different characters and stuff like that and it's also got expanded instrumentation in addition to the mothers who i think were a seven-piece band at the time uh he also has uh uh, uh violinists and uh trumpets and, and all sorts of unusual additional instrumentation playing this very severe uh modern classical music that, that he wrote for sections of that piece it's very unusual stuff for a rock musician to have been doing at the time and then the album that came after that which is called we're only in it for the money was was truly groundbreaking it was it was a, again you know unbroken suites of music on each side but it was a, a really just sort of unflinching uh, look at uh, at primarily the hippie culture of the time, which Frank was very disdainful of. A lot of people thought that he was a heavy drug user, but he never did drugs and, and was actually you know real dead set against it. And uh, but the the sound of the album was groundbreaking because he was doing a lot of, of experimentation with tape and with manipulation of of sounds. Like he could take the sound of a clarinet and speed it up and run it through various effects in the studio and and, and do tape splices and, and have it coming coming out sounding like just like some crazy beast 
so <laughs> it was almost like he was sampling himself or sampling his own band and then doing an incredible amount of sonic manipula manipulation of, of that source material. It was, uh, these were sort of experiments that, uh, you know, maybe a lot of contemporary composers like Stockhausen and, and you know, were doing at the time. But in popular music, it was it was pretty uh, unheard of. So you know, Frank just was always if he was given time in the studio, he was he was doing what he could to maximize it and do as much experimentation and research and development as he possibly could. You know, but the but the songs on there are just incredible. Oh, absolutely. And then jumping ahead a little bit, you you mentioned Uncle Meat earlier, but just remind our listeners, you know, uh, and not to be confused with the, I guess there was a film that came out years later, got the same title about it. But um, but yeah, just how do you think that continued to push push the band forward? Well, he he got some some more people in the band at that point, and he had uh, there was a guy named Ian Underwood who had joined for We're Only in It for the Money, a beautiful piano player and, and alto sax player and he really came into his own on Uncle Meat because uh, Frank was able to take him and and Bunk Gardner who also played woodwinds and overdub them many times over so you would hear what sounded you know for all the world like a, a chamber group of, of, of woodwinds but it was just Bunk and Ian um, overdubbed many times over uh, and you know so Frank was getting into heavy overdubbing at, around that time and there was also a woman named Ruth Underwood who came into the scene at that point you know she became Ruth Underwood when she married Ian um, but her name was Ruth Komansky and uh, so she was playing uh, marimba and uh, xylophone and vibraphone and, and other percussion and percussion went on to become a huge part of, uh, of Frank's sonic imprint and uncle meat is, is the first time you hear that like the, the the very first song on the album which is the main title theme from uncle meat uh is the the, the lead melody is, is taken by by marimba which was also played by uh one of the drummers art trip uh so it, it, he was just expanding the instrumentation possibilities on, on uncle meat and his composition got ever more uh uh, ambitious and and experimental, and that 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 was like the, the first. Well, he had done an album called Lumpy Gravy before that, which was written for like a studio orchestra. Um, and so that was like some serious composition. Although Frank always bridled at the idea that one kind of composition could be more serious than another. He you know he took it all exactly as seriously and exactly not as seriously. It was all just sound to him, and and he thought it was all equally valid. Right. Like all geniuses will say, they don't even realize how they're <laughs> shattering everything as it goes along. Well, jump ahead real quick to 200 motels. Cause I know that was a, a you know, powerful soundtrack, but also for, for a movie where he played himself and um, the mother's invention playing themselves and even some guest spots, but I think like Ringo Starr and Keith Moon and a bunch of other people also acted in it, but talk about um, that as, as both, you know, both the music and, and, and a surreal sort of musical film. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it was interesting. Ringo actually played a character named Larry, the dwarf impersonating Frank Zappa. So that was, <laughs> that's some layers right there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, Keith Moon played a nun. Uh, so he, you know, he definitely found some interesting things for, for these guys to do. Um, again, it was the the music of it was heavily orchestral, and and the orchestra playing the music actually appeared in the film, uh, which is interesting because the orchestra, which was the, the the Royal Philharmonic, didn't like the music and didn't like Frank, and you can see their disdain for the whole enterprise pretty clearly on the screen. Uh, so that again, an interesting layer 
but uh, Frank was was given a budget uh, to make the movie, and it was a small budget, and he was only able to film uh, uh, a small portion of, of what was in the shooting script, and then in editing had to try to make some kind of coherent uh, plot uh, thing out of it. And it's it's you know for a 1971 film, it was the first film shot on videotape, so that gave mm. them a lot more. Uh, uh, fast editing capabilities that the, that they wouldn't have had otherwise and also some some visual effects uh that were only available for for videotape so there's you know once again similar to what he had done with with audio tape just experimentation and and seeing how far is it possible given the resources given the budget how much uh, can we accomplish here that's new and previously undone he was he always was interested in just creating things that nobody else had even considered creating before Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, he continued out all through the 70s. I do. I have to hit Overnight Sensation was a really big album. I think it might have gone gold even. But and particularly the the song Montana, a lot of people will rank that as among his best stuff. But talk about, you know, that album and, and that song Montana. I mean, it's up there with some of the best he ever did. Right. Well, it's 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 the the band that was on that album was unbelievable. And, and the sound of that album is unbelievable. Sonically, it's incredible. He, he had you know, violin and clarinet and trombone and marimba and, and all these these timbres, these sonorities became a, a huge part of what of what people a lot of people came to think of as the Zappa sound. When people say Zappa-esque, it's it's almost like that's the sound. But at the same time, he pretty intentionally uh, because that that band, if you saw that band live, their live repertoire was very uh, mostly instrumental and very you know intricate, crazy, complex stuff. But for overnight overnight sensation, he pretty intentionally focused on the you know more uh, accessible stuff in, in his in, in the music that he was writing at the time. So in addition to Montana, which is the, in our repertoire, we play that song. There's another song on that album called Zombie Wolf, uh, and then uh, Dynamo Hum, which became sort of a, an infamous uh, uh, track in his uh, in his catalog. You know, and a lot of people. Uh, kind of gravitated to it because the the lyrics were, were kind of dirty you know he was he's describing some some uh some uh, activities in there uh but you know to, to him you know somebody said how can you how can you justify the fact that you've got songs like dynamo hum in your catalog at the same time that you have this this very serious music that you've written for orchestra and he's like well i can justify it because uh, a song like Dynamo Hum pays for for me to be able to do these orchestral things, you know. Right. It's like so he was he was also looking at his uh, you know at balance in his uh, album catalog. And if I do this kind of music, that will allow me later to do this other kind of music that maybe not so many people will be into. So he you know he wanted to be a going concern. He wanted to be able to, and and he you know eventually became a, a completely self contained in industry after some unhappy experiences with uh with uh with major record labels uh he you know later on started his own label which once again was was a, a bit groundbreaking at the time in the in the you know very early 80s and there weren't that many uh established you know, world renowned artists who were you know essentially going independent uh you know and nowadays it's like it used to be that a, a band number one goal was to be signed to a record deal and and now you know most bands run away screaming from the the very idea of such a thing um because of you know the the, the nature of the deals that are usually offered in those circumstances so you know frank and his wife gail who you know ran the label with him 
were very much a self-contained cottage industry eventually. And they were able to do that because of albums like uh, Overnight Sensation and Apostrophe, which is kind of its companion album that came out uh, not too not too much later. And that's yeah, let's go. Let's go in. Let's might as well let's go into Apostrophe because yeah. I mean, you're you were just talking about sort of the fascinating push pull of you know the artistic expression versus commercial or a commercial imperative, I guess. You know, like doing one mm. song for for the for the for the money and one for just really experimenting, and it all kind of comes together in Apostrophe, which was right after Overnight Sensation. Apostrophe might have been dare say might be the most successful album we ever did i mean i think it cracked like the top 10 of the billboard album so I, yeah it might be the highest i'd have to double check but um but anyway more 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 i want to talk about is it had some of the songs that we all know and love the most like don't eat the yellow snow was on there and cosmic debris was on there um mm -hmm. talk about don't eat the yellow snow i mean come on <laughs> well yeah i mean it's 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 comedy comedy music you could call it but at the same time if you listen to it you know with with the the right sort of ear you can hear that what the band is doing on there is just unbelievable there's there's this, it's it's a four movement piece in its complete form uh and the third movement is called saint alfonso's pancake breakfast and it's got at, at the time some of the most insane music i had ever heard on a record there's there's a, a passage in there for you know primarily played by george duke on on synthesizer and uh and ruth underwood on marimba uh, with unbelievable drumming and and bass playing, it, it, it's just a, a ridiculous passage. Um, but the, that that uh, out that that piece, "Don't Eat the Yellow Snow," uh, became more well known when a DJ, I can't remember in which market, but a radio DJ, took uh, that piece and did his own edit. He listened to it and said, "Wow, this I could play this on my show." And and he took this you know eight minute piece and you know edited it down to like two and a half minutes. Uh, without Frank even knowing about it and it became like in that market became a, a, a huge thing and then when Frank got wind of it and I think other stations were picking up on it somehow getting like an air check re recording of it and playing it so Frank got wind of it replicated the edit and, uh, and he might have done a slightly different edit I'm not sure and uh, and they put it out as a single and yeah uh, apostrophe ended up in the in the top 10 which is not a thing that happened uh, in Frank Zappa's career very often <laughs> no but but that but he kept it going uh, that that chic the chic album I don't even know how you say it chic shake your booty shake uh, oh is, uh... <laughs> of course shake your booty because dancing fool is on there so yeah shake your booty <laughs> the yeah. play on the words yeah, exactly. uh, do you know any yeah. tidbits on the creation of that one yeah well it's uh, that was that was an interesting record because one of the things he really liked doing was was to take live recordings of his band on you know from the road and then bring those into the studio and do a whole bunch of overdubs to it so like if there are there are tracks on that album that are virtually just live recordings but there are other ones where he then you know went in the studio and overdubbed a bunch of keyboards and additional guitars and a lot of additional vocals so it's this very interesting hybrid where you've got this you know powerful live energy happening at the at the core of it but then on top of it you've got all this additional orchestration and then that's a very popular record that definitely like uh, gained a, a huge following and it was it was that was the first album on his label zappa records in 1979 and uh he put it out at the same time that Warner Brothers was putting out a, a bunch of uh, unauthorized Frank Zappa records because he was in uh, legal uh, dispute with Warner at the time. So uh, he, uh, you know, he kind of did battle by putting out his own album at the same time and, and having that one be, you know, much more successful than the Warner records were. So that um, was the I, first one under his own label. 
Yeah. And then later on, he formed another label of his own called Barking Pumpkin, and that became his primary label throughout the the 80s. Yeah, I mean, everyone also check out Joe's Garage, too. I mean, there's some big stuff on there. Yeah, Yeah, but but you've been more than generous with your time. So again, everyone check them out. The Zappa Band, uh, it's going to be at the Birchmere in Alexandria on the 19th, and then uh, in Annapolis at Ram's Head uh, on the 21st. So, hey, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate such a deep dive. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to, to dive so deep, but that was fun, and I appreciate it too. And uh, yeah, thanks for letting people know about the shows. I hope they can make it out. All right, sounds good. Mike Keneally, appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much, Jason. I also spoke with Frank Zappa's son, Dweezil Zappa, when he played the Birchmere in 2016, raising money for the charity Guitars Not Guns. I'm here with the one and only Dweezil Zappa. Take me into, you know, if, if people do end up showing up at Birchmere, what sort of stuff uh, can they expect from your show? Well, this is a tour where I'm playing music from my new album that's called Via Zamata. It's the first record that I've made uh, in the 10 years that... Um, I have started doing Zappa Plays Zappa, so it's really sort of the first record that uh, gave me a chance to incorporate things that I've learned from 10 years of playing my dad's music, but also just getting back to my own roots as uh, as a musician on my own. So it's... Uh, I, I would say, uh, for lack of a better description, it's more of like a pop... Uh, it's a twisted pop record, really, with with uh, quirky arrangements of things. There's there's plenty of guitar and things thrown into it, but it's uh, probably less of what uh, what people would actually expect from from me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that twisted pop. It'll be a new genre. You know, your dad had some radical rock, and your twisted pop on the new album. I love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that it, the last 10, I guess, decade or so, you've been playing Zappa playing Zappa, your dad's stuff. How do you balance keeping your own creative fires alive, writing this new album of yours, and also paying tribute to, you know, the previous generation? Well, the reason Zappa plays Zappa exists is because there's so few opportunities for newer generations to really discover my dad's music, and I felt like it was in many ways undiscovered, but it was also... Once my father passed away, it was also being uh, treated improperly because a lot of uh, things that were being written about his music and the way that history was attempting to rewrite itself was uh, they were really making it more about novelty music and saying, oh, he's the guy that had songs like Yellow Snow and Valley Girl and stuff like that. Now, those are songs that maybe got on the radio, but that's barely representative of the over 80 albums that he made in his career, which were mostly, you know, serious music. And there's the uh, avant-garde and classical and jazz and rock and all these things. So I wanted to make something that allowed newer generations to discover a much broader uh, variety of the music in a live setting. And, uh, and so that was just an important thing uh, to me to to give people that opportunity. And it happened to be something that was of interest to people, so we've been doing it for 10 years. But, uh, you know, all that time I'd also been interested in doing stuff of my own. It's just that the uh, effort it takes to learn and play uh, my dad's music is pretty monumental. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't have a lot of uh, extra time. Uh, but I finally made some time to do it, and that's what um, the Via Zamata record is. 
And so, you know, this year we're going to play some shows um, in support of that, but we're also still doing more Zappa Play Zappa things. And maybe there'll be a, a combination of the two at, at future shows. Awesome. Hey, and w- what better song during the blizzard of 2016 than Yellow Snow? I mean, it fits in perfectly. Yeah, why not? <laughs> All right, cool. Let's get to uh, Guitars Not Guns, this uh, children's music charity that you know, you've been participating in, in multiple ways lately. Uh, we interviewed Gregory Hammond, the guy who founded this thing. How did he contact you? How did you guys get hooked up? I was working with um, a bunch of different folks in Montana at a guitar camp that's called the Crown of the Continent Guitar Festival. And uh, Greg was at the festival, um, I believe, uh, the first time, uh, just uh, as a student himself. Uh, but then he, he came another time uh, with um, uh, a couple people that were from the, the charity that uh, were students that, that got a chance to come out and be part of the, the camp. Uh, so... Uh, in talking to him at the Crown of the Continent Guitar Camp, you know, it seemed like it was a, a, a very worthy um, cause to to sort of get uh, invested in, um, just because you know playing guitar is is something that you can do for a lifetime, but uh, when you learn at an early age. It's something that can keep you very occupied and self-motivated. Um, and essentially, if you have that kind of drive to do something, um, like learn an instrument, you can parlay that into other things that you want to learn more about and and keep that self-motivation. And it keeps you out of trouble, basically, because you have things to do, things to accomplish, and uh, rather than... Uh, find yourself uh, with the wrong crowd. Uh, so you yeah, know, it's a you, positive outlet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and you you represented the the charity like that was your charity of choice. On you went on Celebrity Rock Star episode of Chopped. Yep. How did you How did you get invited onto there? And um, God, I think you were competing for like ten thousand dollars trying to raise it for guitars. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a, a popular show on the Food Network, Chopped, and they had a, an episode where they invited musicians to come on and um, all compete for a charity. And uh, so uh, I enjoy food and cooking and all those things, but uh, I don't do it in, in a competitive way. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a challenge to go into a, a foreign kitchen and be handed ingredients that are uh, all uh, incongruous in uh, some type of a uh, a box that's that's made uh, to to create failure for people. <laughs> so and that, it was a stressful uh, uh, thing to be a part of, but it was uh, a, a interesting um, creative challenge. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, I think another run-in you had with with the charity, you donated a, a, that rock star chef jacket from the from the show uh, yep. and and a dressing room door sign to the charity. Uh, yeah. And did, did did I hear you had all the rock stars on the show sign it too? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know the the people that were involved in the show were all um, real nice uh, musicians. It was Lita Ford. It was. Um, uh, who were the other folks? There was the guitarist uh, from uh, Twisted Sister. 
and also the singer from uh, Foreigner, uh, awesome. and Kelly Hansen. Um, uh, so the you know everybody was there to to have fun and and raise awareness for their charities and stuff too. So uh, you know they were they were happy to lend their brief moment of uh, signature status <laughs> to those items <laughs> literally signature status now, i see what you did there that was that was a little tricky um also and then um i think um even more re- another time at the crown of the continent guitar festival in big fork montana you brought up a was it a student or i guess it was a, an alum of the of guitars not guns you brought him up to to perform muffin man yeah this um this opportunity just came about because um, uh, the the musician that uh, that joined us was um, he was himself uh, a student uh, who learned through guitars, not guns, and and then became a teacher in the system uh, of it. So you know when he was able to come up and join us on stage. Um, it was kind of uh, quite literally for him an out-of-body experience because he started doing these wild uh, dance maneuvers and his his eyes were rolling back in the back of his head. <laughs> he was like in a trance. Uh, <laughs> so he was he was having a, a great time uh, on this this song, but uh, it was a um, uh, a real uh, monumental uh, performance outlet for for him because. You know, he he was talking about where he came from and and what obstacles he had overcome uh, and how guitars, uh, not guns, had helped him. And you know, he never thought he'd be in a position to go to the camp or let alone come on stage and play wow. play with us. You know, so it's just one of those things that can open doors for people. Uh, if they want it to, you know, it's yeah. uh, it's just a, a transfer of of energy to the, to the right direction. You know, it's it's uh, if you can create a uh, self fulfilling prophecy by you know <laughs> really just uh, <laughs> taking taking the time to to focus on something that you want to learn, a skill that you that can actually give you something in life. You know. I love the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it really is. Once you decide you're doing to do it, you know the universe kind of bends to your will. <laughs> I mean, that's really uh, if you can see it in your mind's eye, you can make it happen. There's there's so many things in life that people are going to tell you no, no, that's not possible. But that's that's not for them to say. That's it's for you to choose and and make your own decision. I mean, obviously, there's plenty of people who have succeeded way beyond what anybody would imagine in all kinds of businesses where people started off saying, no, that's a terrible idea. That'll never work. And then they become a billionaire, you know? So, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it really is just about finding the ability within yourself to, to get motivated and, and stay focused on something and not get caught up in something else that is clearly not, good for you, you know, guns and violence and things that uh, uh, are all go with that, that, you know, hanging out with people that are looking for trouble, obviously, uh, you know, if they're looking for it, they're going to find it. Exactly, exactly. Getting in with the right crowd. 
Well, the uh, the guy, I think the alum of the group was Tyvon Hewitt, and maybe one day he'll have a group called Hewitt Playing Hewitt, like Zappa Playing Zappa. You, you yeah. never know. But yeah, Tyvon, he was uh, he was pretty wild. You you might be able to find some videos of him on uh, on YouTube uh, playing that song because, uh, like I said, he uh, he got into it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. We're definitely gonna have to fire up YouTube and see if we can find that. Uh, Dweezil, thank you so much. We know you're a busy man, so we'll you know we'll let you run. But uh, thanks so much for not only just joining us, but for all the stuff you've been doing with guitars, not guns. It's a great cause. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.